maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve, and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Good evening. My name is Nairi Woods, and I'm Dean of the Blavatnik School of Government at Oxford University. It gives me particular pleasure to be moderating a debate on the question, Western liberal democracy would be wrong for China. In establishing a school of government, what's struck me is how much that question is being asked both outside in and inside out around the world. How many times in the United States and Europe I've been asked if it wouldn't be better to move to a model of authoritarian or benign dictatorship, and how many times in China and elsewhere I've been asked searching questions about democracy. So this is a truly timely debate. Um, You will be casting your vote at the end of the debate, for those of you who are coming to this as their first Intelligence Squared debate, um, you tear your ticket in two, and you can cast your bait either for or against, depending on which of these fantastic panellists has persuaded you that their side of this argument is right. If you just want to sit on the fence you can put your entire ticket on the box, in the box, but I think that's unsporting. So I'd urge you all to, to um, boldly take, make your vote. I think it's, it's also timely that we're having this debate the day after America's election. I think in the minds of many of us are questions about whether it's necessarily the case that the skills it takes to win an election are not the skills it takes to govern a country well. I think many of us are asking whether it's a good use of half a billion dollars put in by companies to purchase, some would say, their preferences in government. And that, likewise, the non-democratic systems of the world have their counterpart in the injections of billions, perhaps less transparently, into control over their leadership. I think in both West and East, there's a real issue about what is the system which best protects minorities and the very poorest in society, where in one system they might have legal rights which aren't enforced, and in the other they don't have the legal rights in the first place. So these these are the questions I'm very much hoping our debate will take us to tonight. So without further ado, I'm going to call on Zhang Weiwei as our first 
speaker. He's senior fellow at the Qingqiu Institute, author of The China Wave, The Rise of a Civilizational State. Zhang Weiwei will be known to many of you as the senior translator to Deng Xiaoping. But perhaps you don't realize that he spent the last 24 years, or he spent 24 years, I should say, living and working in Europe. And when I asked Zhang Weiwei why, what, what was it about Europe that he most liked, he said, it's the taste for everything old and the architecture. So Zhang Weiwei, we look forward to your argument for the motion that Western liberal democracy would be wrong for China. Uh, thank you, Professor Woods, for your very kind introduction. We are living in an extraordinary time of history. Yesterday, the U.S. held its presidential election, and tomorrow, China will hold its 18th Party Congress, which will unveil China's new generation of leaders. The Western media tends to present the two events as a sharp contrast between an opaque communist state beset with crises and a transparent, dynamic, liberal democracy. Behind this very superficial contrast is a widely held view that Western liberal democracy represents the ultimate best political system, or in Professor Fukuyama's words, the end of history. And therefore, China is viewed always as a kind of enlarged Belarus awaiting a color revolution in the transition towards liberal democracy. Short of that, China will be hopeless. But this school of thought is faced with a mind-boggling question. It's forever pessimistic forecasts about China, China's collapse, turns to be always wrong. And after three decades misplaced predictions about China, it's time now to think outside the box, to consider seriously the theme of our debate today, Western liberal democracy would be wrong for China. To my mind, there are at least five reasons for this argument. First, common sense. With a population larger than the combined populations of North America, Europe, Russia, Japan, and more, with no tradition of liberal democracy whatsoever, with a fresh memory of the devastating breakup of the Soviet Union, Russia was only one-tenth of China's size in terms of population, with long memory of upheavals throughout China's long and modern history. And China's fear of upheavals is based on common sense. Indeed, the country may well become ungovernable if it adopted Western political model. China is not an enlarged Belarus. China is a civilizational state. It's the size of roughly average, 100 average European states. It's a product of hundreds of states amalgamated into one over its long history. An inaccurate analogy would be something like the ancient Roman Empire continuing to this day as unified modern state with a centralized government, modern economy, all its diverse traditions and cultures and huge population that all speak Latin. To be frank, this kind of state cannot afford one person, one vote, a multi-party system. Even the European Union of 27 cannot afford this kind of system. If they adopt this kind of model, it will either become a useless white elephant or end up in disintegration. Second, empirical evidence. China actually experimented liberal democracy after its 1911 Republic Revolution. But this experiment turned out to be a devastating catastrophe. The country immediately plunged into chaos and civil wars, with hundreds of political parties juggling for power, with warlords fighting each other, 
each supported by some foreign powers, with a shattered economy and millions of lives lost in the decades to come. This kind of lesson is so sharp and so fresh in the memory of the Chinese today. Virtually, Chinese often use the word "luan." They are afraid of luan. What does the luan mean? Chinese means chaos. And uh, third, performance. China has performed arguably better than most liberal democracies over the past three decades, especially in domains of great concern to most Chinese people. Of course, China has its share of problems. Some are very serious, but China's overall success is beyond a doubt. Over the past three decades, China has performed better than all the developing countries combined in terms of eradicating poverty. 70% of world's poverty were eradicated in China over the past 20 years. China has performed better than all the transition economies combined because China's economy increased 18-fold in a matter of three decades, compared with, say, Eastern Europe, roughly one-fold. China has also performed better than many developed countries. China has a large developed region, roughly 300 million people, uh, the size of the United States, which today, in many ways, can compete with developed countries. And the first-tier cities, like Shanghai in this developed region, can and should be able to compete with London or New York. Fourth, the liberal democracy model itself is in deep trouble, as shown in crisis after crisis from deeply indebted America to distressed Europe. Even with Obama's election victory today, I don't see any solution to America's protracted problems. Despite some of its known strengths, liberal democracy as an institution has been seriously eroded by such prevailing problems, such as short-termism, single-minded populism, the excessive influence of money, especially in the United States, one dollar, one vote, and the influence of special interests. Abraham Lincoln's idea of government of the people, by the people, for the people, is hardly achievable among liberal democracies. Otherwise, Joseph Stiglitz, Nobel Economics laureate, would not have complained. He said, American polity has become of the 1%, by the 1%, for the 1%. This is why even the advocate of the end of history, Professor Fukuyama, said not long ago in the Financial Times op-ed that United States democracy has little to teach China now. Fifth, and my last point, the China model without much fanfare. Beijing has actually introduced major reforms into its ways of political governance and established a very elaborate system of meritocracy, which can be called selection plus election across the whole of China's political structure. Nothing can better illustrate this meritocracy system than the lineup of the next generation of Chinese political leaders to be unveiled in the coming days. Virtually all the candidate members of China's standing committee, the highest decision body, decision-making body of China, have served twice at the number one of the Chinese province. As you may know, given the size of China, each province is often four or five times of the average European states. It's by no means, it takes extraordinary talent and skill to govern a Chinese state. You have to do it twice and perform well before you get a ticket to enter into top leadership. I said, with this kind of meritocracy system in place, as is the case now. Of course, it can be further improved, but we can already guarantee such leaders like George W. Bush or Japan's Prime Minister Noda will have no chance whatsoever to enter top-level leadership. It's way below the Chinese standards. To be frank, the China model is more about leadership while the liberal democracy model seems more about showmanship. 
China is now capable of planning for the next generation, while the other model planning for next election or next 100 days. China's meritocracy system indeed challenges this stereotypical dichotomy of democracy versus autocracy. From the Chinese point of view, the nature of a state, including its legitimacy, has to be defined by its substance, that is, by good governance, with competent leaders and measured by what state can deliver and to what extent people are satisfied. Despite its deficiencies, which could be many, the Chinese polity has ensured the world's fastest growing economy over three decades running and ensure the vast improved living standards for most Chinese. As revealed in the most recent PW survey, PW Washington-based research organization, 82% Chinese feel optimistic about the future of their country. Indeed, this statistic is so good, it's way ahead of all the Western liberal democracies. Winston Churchill's famous dictum, democracy is the worst form of government except for those other forms that have been tried, may be true in the Western political culture. Many Chinese even paraphrase this phrase into what Chinese call xia xia or least bad option. But in China's own political culture, in Confucian tradition of meritocracy, a state should always strive for the best of the best solution and option. It's by no means easy, but you have to try. Even you meet half of these standards, which is already admirable. So at this moment, China has succeeded in building up, although it's not perfect yet, this kind of meritocracy system will combine the best option of selecting well-tested leaders and also introduce the least bad option to ensure the exit of bad leaders through collective leadership, through terms, very strict term limit, age limit. So I think this kind of meritocracy is really uh, competitive. It may win out in this global competition of ideas and uh, good governance and good democracy. China has learned so much from the West and will continue to do so for its own benefit. But it may be time now to use Deng Xiaoping's famous phrase to emancipate the mind and learn a bit on the part of the West to learn a bit more about China and even learn a bit from the Chinese ideas and practices, however extraneous they may appear for its own benefit. In conclusion, one man's medicine could be another man's poison. And Western liberal democracy may be great or less great for the West, but would be miserably wrong for a country like China. Thank you very much for your attention. Our next speaker speaking against the motion is the former Chief Secretary of Hong Kong, the first woman and the first Chinese to hold this second highest governmental position in Hong Kong. Anson Chan is someone who learned her politics at home. She and her twin sister and six brothers contending and with a remarkable woman as a mother, a mother who was widowed in her mid-30s and raised the eight children as well as carving herself out a career as a famous calligraphist and painter. We're lucky to have Anson Chan here today. Thank you, Anne. Thank you. I'd like to thank Intelligence Squared for inviting me to participate in this debate, addressing the motion that Western liberal democracy would be bad for China. I think the selection of today's date could not be more apt, neatly sandwiched between yesterday's U.S. presidential election and tomorrow's opening of the 18th National Congress of the Communist Party of China, 
that will usher in the next generation of Chinese leadership. The contrast between the nail-biting finish of one with the carefully choreographed outcome of the other could hardly be more stark. I'd like to begin by addressing the subtext to the motion, namely that the Chinese model of government has done more for the Chinese than the Western model of government ever could. This rather presupposes that within this room, we share a common understanding of what is meant by the Chinese model of government and the term Western liberal democracy. As I doubt this is so, permit me to give my perspective. 63 years on from the end of the civil war in China, the Communist Party still remains firmly in control. However, the policies of the last 30 years, in particular the evolution of capitalism with Chinese characteristics, have moved light years away from the ideologies of the Mao era, which thrived on constant social and economic turmoil and led, amongst other things, to the disasters of the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, during which millions died. The key characteristics of the current Chinese model of government would seem to me to be an ever-growing bureaucracy intent on preserving at all costs one-party rule, recognition that this can only be achieved if the population at large believes the economic benefits being reaped outweigh the fact that they have no say in the selection of those who govern them. An economy that is still largely command-led, structured around successive five-year plans supported by huge government investment in state-controlled enterprises and infrastructure. Vigorous suppression of dissent through strict censorship and harassment persecution of any who dare to speak out against the system or its injustices and subordination of the rights of the individual to the wider public interest as determined by the state. Set against this are what I see as the typical characteristics of a Western liberal democracy. Recognition of the essential role of political parties as channels for the expression of differing views within society and a basis for orderly change of government from time to time. Bias towards a predominantly market-led economy in which the government's priorities are to nurture innovation, support free enterprise, and ensure that the needs of vulnerable sectors of the community are met. Absolute commitment to the rule of law, freedom of thought and expression, protection of individual rights and freedoms within a just and fair society. There is no doubt that the Chinese model of government, however described, has delivered extremely impressive economic growth, lifting many millions out of poverty and, in the meantime, greatly enriching some. But the speed and scale of China's development is not exactly unprecedented in more democratic societies. Look at the rise of Great Britain as a global economic power in the second half of the 19th century, or the emergence of the United States from the Great Depression of the 1930s to become the most prosperous and powerful nation in the world. Conversely, in the latter part of the 20th century, the Soviet Union's socialist model of centrally controlled economic development, which China initially sought to emulate, collapsed, unable to fend off demands for political reform from within or compete effectively with the faster-growing market-driven economies of the West. To argue that Western liberal democracy would be bad for China is, in my view, an insult to the Chinese people. It implies that they are somehow not sufficiently grown up to aspire to electing their own leaders, as opposed to having them foisted upon them by means of a highly opaque process of balancing the various factions within the governing elite. Furthermore, anyone who argues that Western liberal democracy would be bad for China 
must also be prepared to acknowledge the perils that the nation faces if it doesn't begin to take some genuine steps in the direction of political reform. All around the world, previously unshakable authoritarian regimes are being challenged and overthrown. No wonder China is keeping a nervous eye on developments in North Africa and the Middle East. It took the self-immolation of just one persecuted street vendor to trigger revolution in Tunisia. In Tibet and Sichuan, the tally of self-immolations has risen to nearly 60 since 2009 and shows no sign of abating. The current Chinese model of government is founded on the belief that as long as the economy keeps growing and standards of living rising, stability can be maintained and the population at large will tolerate, amongst other things, an ever-widening wealth gap between the cities and countryside, restriction of personal rights and freedoms, and the continuing crushing of any form of dissent. This strategy, in my view, is fundamentally flawed. The current form of government is under challenge from a rising tide, not just of discontent, but real anger among sectors of the population that are increasingly disaffected. No one knows exactly how many incidents of popular unrest, commonly referred to as mass incidents, are occurring. Some estimates put it at 180,000 in 2011, whilst others believe that this is just the tip of the iceberg. Little wonder that China is now spending more on internal security than on the funding of its military. Popular anger and increasingly bold resistance to government authorities is being fueled by forced land acquisitions, arbitrary land grabs by provincial officials, often to make way for totally unnecessary development, empty high-rises and shopping malls, roads to nowhere. The collapse of shoddily constructed schools in the 2008 Sichuan earthquake, tainted baby milk and other food safety scandals, environmental degradation have led and are leading to unprecedented confrontations between ordinary citizens and the government. Still, all too often, Instead of acknowledging shortcomings and responding to justified concerns, the authorities' reaction is to punish the protesters for disturbing social harmony. Corruption is now rife at every level of the Chinese political machine. Power is concentrated in the hands of a privileged clique, perhaps no more than 400 families, who are bound by a common purpose to protect their mutual vested interests and capacity for self-enrichment. The communist vision of proletarian supremacy within an egalitarian state has been subsumed by greed and injustice, exemplified by the often shameless flaunting by party cadres of ill-gotten wealth and a culture of impunity from moral and even criminal culpability. No one wants to see China go the way of the Soviet Union in the aftermath of its disintegration. The gains that China has made in the past three decades are far too precious to put at risk. In an age when the dissemination of information via the internet and the blogosphere is unstoppable, to continue to try and stifle dissatisfaction and dissent is about as futile as King Canute's legendary attempt to stop the tide coming in. Current abuses of power and the pervading lack of transparency and accountability simply will not be tolerated indefinitely. Everywhere in the world, the need for change is the mantra. Rather than waiting for popular unrest to force change, China's leaders should now be actively planning for an orderly relaxation of its iron grip on political power and a move towards greater openness and participatory politics. My conclusion? The central government needs a new model that it can nail its colours to. Back in the late 1970s and early 1980s, Hong Kong played a crucial role in kick-starting China's economic revolution. Under Deng Xiaoping's open-door policy, special economic zones were established on the border with or in close proximity to Hong Kong, with the express purpose 
of inducing Hong Kong industrialists to move their manufacturing operations across the border, where land and labor were so much cheaper. This marked the start of how southern China morphed into the factory of the world, piggy-banking on Hong Kong investment that provided employment for millions of migrant workers and provided the formula to attract wider foreign investment. The Hong Kong economic model clearly worked. And I believe that the Chinese central government can and should look to Hong Kong to test a new model of more democratic government that could be extended progressively into the mainland. Thanks to the terms of the Sino-British Joint Declaration and the concept of one country, two systems enshrined in our constitution, the basic law, Hong Kong people enjoy the fundamental freedoms associated with a modern liberal democracy, namely the rule of law and an independent judiciary, freedom of expression including freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom from arbitrary arrest and imprisonment, zero tolerance of corruption, the promise, not yet realized, of the right to elect our head of government and legislature by means of universal suffrage. Far from being bad for China, it is essential that the coming leadership in Beijing begin to draw up a blueprint for reform that provides Chinese people through a process of evolution, not revolution, with the fundamental rights and freedoms associated with liberal democratic government. There are plenty of studies to confirm the link between rising levels of economic well-being and the openness of the political system. A democratically-based system of governance will not only sustain China's long-term economic growth, but will also enrich Chinese society and the world at large. And the perils of not doing so are becoming increasingly acute. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So, ladies and gentlemen, I beg to oppose the motion before you this evening. Thank you. So our next speaker, um, speaking for the motion, is Martin Jakes. Martin is author of the book, When China Rules the World, a senior research fellow at the LSE and a visiting professor at Tsinghua University in Beijing. He tells me his fascination with China began on a holiday in southern China in 1993, where, from the sounds of it, he fell in love with both a country and a woman at the same time. In about 30 seconds, he told me. Martin. I'd like, I'd hasten to add it wasn't 15 seconds, it was 30 seconds, it was 15 minutes. And it didn't happen in China, it happened in Malaysia. And my wife-to-be was not Chinese, but of Indian descent, Indian-Malaysian. <laughs> so apart from a few inaccuracies, it was accurate. <laughs> now, I want to clarify, first of all, what this motion is about, or what it's not about is probably the best way of putting it. This is not a proposal that liberal Western-style democracy will always be inappropriate for China. I don't know what the situation is going to be like in 25 years or 50 years. I don't even know what the situation is likely to be in the West in that period. What we're discussing is something much more specific. Likewise, we're not suggesting, or certainly I'm not suggesting, and the motion is not suggesting, that what happens in China and the arrangements that are appropriate for China in this period should be transplanted into our own societies. I would not argue that for a moment. In fact, on the contrary, I would say that the reason Western democracies have grown up in the West has been because of the history and the culture 
of our societies. And we need to pay due respect, I would suggest, to China and the differences of its history and culture in the same way. What this motion is about is a country which is a developing country, which in the middle of the 20th century was extremely poor, which had suffered 200 years, during a 200-year period of more or less, and I mean this literally, economic stagnation. Its GDP at the end of this period was more or less the same as it was in the first part of the 19th century. And it had been invaded and partially colonized by many countries, including our own. In 1949, China was a mess and a basket case. And the task that confronted China was how, with this vast country, could they transform it? And they made quite a few false moves and false starts. So when Deng Xiaoping came to power in 1978, he identified the two crucial tasks, tasks of China. The first was an overwhelming focus on the need for economic growth, and secondly, intimately tied to that, was the need for a huge reduction in poverty in a poverty-stricken country. At that time in 1978, the Chinese economy was one-twentieth of the size of the American economy. And since that move from the end of the 70s in the direction of economic reform, we have seen the most remarkable economic transformation in human history. A population of 1.3 billion people, one-fifth of humanity, its economy growing at 10% a year, to the point where, today, the Chinese economy is half the size of the American economy. And there's a general view now that the Chinese economy will overtake the American economy in size around about 2018. This is truly remarkable. And I want to correct you, Anson, because it's just not true that the British experience or the American experience of industrialization in any way compares with the Chinese achievement. The British Industrial Revolution between 1780 and 1830, which was the key period, or you can push it to 1840, the growth rate was around about, on average, 1.5% a year. 1.5% a year. And that was a population of, what, 20, 30 million at that time, probably more like 20 million at that time. Or take America. You mentioned America. Well... The period between the end of the Civil War, the mid-1860s, to 1914, the American growth rate never exceeded, on average, something like 3.5%. And that, of course, again, was a much smaller population. So that is why I suggest that this is the most remarkable economic transformation there has ever been. And it has been presided over by the Chinese government. And it has lifted. I mean, let's remember this as well. If you look at the reduction in global poverty over the last 30 years, China is, overwhel is responsible for the overwhelming bulk of that reduction in poverty. If you take China out of the equation, actually the global performance has been very disappointing. Now, I challenge the view that this does not, the Chinese government does not enjoy the support of overwhelming mass of Chinese people. I don't know, you know, if you look at, for example, the Pew Global Attitude Surveys, uh, the uh, support for the Chinese government is, is extraordinarily impressive. If you look at Tony Sage's work uh, from the Harvard Kennedy School uh, in terms of the levels of satisfaction amongst the Chinese in terms of their government, you know, the ratings are extremely high indeed. And is it so surprising? 
If your living standards are growing, as they have been now for a while, at roughly the same pace of economic growth, 10% a year, then, you know, it's quite likely that your, popul your population is going to be uh, rather pleased uh, with, uh, with government. And I challenge the idea also that, you know, the political... Uh, of course, there are many things that are different from what we're used to, which we would certainly object to. But the idea that the sort of political atmosphere, the political environment is frozen is a mistake. I mean, the idea that, every, you know, you said dissent is crushed. Excuse me, I mean, there are about 150,000 mass, mass incidents every year in China in which people, uh, which mainly consists of farmers objecting to what they regard to be the illicit seizure of their land by local government, flogging it off to, uh, to, 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 to property developers. And these actions are, well, uh, you know, they're reported in lots of places, and they take place, and it's not true that they're all suppressed. And sometimes when there is suppression, like in Wukan, actually the authorities are forced to retreat or take the wave of strikes in Guangdong province and in, uh, along the eastern coast in Shanghai in, two, uh, in 2010 and 2011. Tens and tens of thousands of people on strike. And they were not suppressed. They were allowed to happen. And the result? Huge wage increases. The minimum wage in Beijing was increased uh, during that period by 30%. Shanghai, roughly similar, and so on. Huge lift in living standards. So it's not good enough, to be frank, to paint China as this sort of autocracy with a central government which suppresses everything. There has been a huge shift in the personal freedoms of the average Chinese since the death of Mao. You've only got to go to Shanghai or to Guangzhou or to Chengdu and you can see it on the streets. And it's not true that everything is censored. Actually, the censorship in China is much lighter than it used to be, much lighter. And the access to information, sure, there are controls on the internet, but quite frankly, if you want to, you can get around them. So this is a society which is throbbing, actually, and is vibrating with debate, contrary to the picture that Anson has presented, which is a very common picture presented uh, to uh, Western uh, audiences. Um, I wanted to just say something else, you see. My concentration in what I want to say is really about China as a developing country. Now, let's take a comparative example, India. In 1950, which has got, in many ways, a, a most impressive democracy, in 1950, the Chinese economy and the Indian economy were more or less the same size. Today, the Chinese economy is four times the size of the Indian economy. Why? Because the economic strategy pursued by the Chinese has been far more successful than the strategy which has been employed by India. And India has a great problem. It's got a most impressive democracy, which is what we celebrate, and an extremely corrupt and inefficient state which cannot deliver. In other words, in that sense, it's opposite to China. And the poverty reduction in China has been far, uh, anyone who goes to China and go, goes to India can see this, has been far more successful uh, than anything that has been achieved uh, in India. Now, I think also we need a bit of humility about this. China is a huge, as Weiwei pointed out, a huge country on a scale that is unimaginable to us in the West. So we... And, we, its task has been how to, it has been an industrial revolution, essentially, economic takeoff, as Rostow described it, the shift from the countryside to industry. Uh, around the time of uh, Deng Xiaoping, it was not much more than 20% of the population lived in the urban centres. Today, it's 50%. Now, what was the situation politically, excuse me, in the West, in Europe, in the United States, when we were having our industrial revolutions? How many Western countries were democracies at the time of their industrial revolutions? Shall I tell you how many? Zero. Zero. In uh, Britain, uh, uh, in, in 1850, uh, finally, one-fifth of men had the right to vote. 
that was after the conclusion of the Industrial Revolution. And it was not until the 1880s that most men had the vote, but not women. Or take America. It was not until 1860 that most white men gained the vote, but not blacks really until the 1960s and women in 1920. And if you look at Europe, exactly the same pattern. Their industrial revolutions were accomplished essentially in France, in Germany, in Italy, and so on, before uh, they had democracy. So when, so when we say they should be like us, well, actually, we should, speak, we should speak with more modesty because we weren't like what we want them to be um, uh, uh, during uh, this particular historical phase. I would like to conclude by just saying this. First of all, I would ask our, my, my country to be more modest and more humble in the face of China's extraordinary achievement and not think our task is to say, why the hell can't you be like us? But on the contrary, I think what we need with the rise of China is a much more humble attitude which recognizes and respects their achievement and also is willing to learn from them. And what we're going to face, I think, now is not just feeling that democracy is important, but also we need to learn from the Chinese about state competence. This is not a subject that's been discussed in the West, but it will be discussed in the West. And here we have much to learn from the Chinese. Thank you very much. So our next speaker speaking against the motion is Jonathan Mursky, a historian of China, in 1989 named International Reporter of the Year for his coverage of the Tiananmen Uprising by British, that was the award by British newspapers. Jonathan's interest in China, um, he's explained to me, goes right back from his parents who lived in Beijing in the 1930s, working in the Peking University Medical Colleges. Jonathan, it's a pleasure to have you at the debate. Uh, I feel very uneasy about going on about this because I think Anson, as I just wrote a note to her, gave the very best talk on what democracy and civil rights are really all about that I've ever heard in my life. I think my friend Roger Garside may be here. Would you put your hand up? Are you here, Roger? Yes, there he is. He wrote a book a long time ago after Mao's death called Coming Alive in Peking when he was in the, it was just after he'd been in the British Embassy there. It was about Democracy Wall, as it was called, and the man who had been the great star at Democracy Wall was Wei Jingsheng, who went to jail for 15 years thereafter for what was called um, sedition. So I'm not here to say that the American or the British model of democracy is the best or even a model. I'm certainly not going to say what Martin Jake said, that we have to learn that a bad, a bad model of democracy is Italy. But we could think about Iceland or Sweden or Norway. Now, what I really have in mind is this. For four years, when I was in a kind of second stage of learning about China, I lived in China, and uh, there was a very brutal dictator in charge. He had a terrifying wife. There were a lot of political prisoners. There was no free press. It was really very scary if you were a Chinese. Then that dictator died, and before long, his son took over, and that place is now a democracy. That's Taiwan. It's full of Chinese who wanted really what in fact uh, had been denied to them for uh, many years. And after that, I worked in China for many years and over and over again in Tiananmen and in lots of other times and places in China. Uh, I saw the Chinese, the need of many Chinese as they expressed 
for these models of a kind of democracy, a free press that's not stifled, that can say what it's like and can even be pornographic and wrong and libelous and scabrous, uh, that there should be free speech, that aside from, again, from slander and things of that kind and racist remarks, that there should be free speech, that there should be freedom of assembly, that people can get together in groups. In fact, it's what, it's what Obama said last night in his speech, that what you see in America is the argument for political change, impossible in China today, but a good thing. Uh, regular elections that people know are going to happen. You might get a terrible leader. You might get a good one. You, you can't be sure, but at least people can get rid of a government or they know it'll go away after a while. And above all, the rule of law, something really predictable. And then I think, is it just, it's a thing I was thinking about in the cab coming over here, a real education. So that if you meet young Chinese who are the elite who are here at the LSE or at Oxford or Cambridge, and if you say to them, what happened in Tiananmen Square in 1989? They say it was a riot and bad people shot down our army and our police. That's what they've been taught in school, and there are many examples of that kind of thing. So what we see is that uh, on the Chinese internet, I just did this today to see what the words were that you, you can't get, that, that are not, they're not available. You can't, you can't read about Wen Jiabao, the premier, who turns out to be in a family of billionaires. The word Taiwan can't appear in the Chinese internet unless you're very good at dodging around it. Or democracy, Tibet, Dalai Lama. If you use any of those words, there can be a knock on the door and you can go inside. It's true that you can say things. You can say things in restaurants or you can say things outside and then all of a sudden something happens. So that if you're the Nobel Prize winner, Liu Xiaobo, you go into jail for about 11 years, or Ai Weiwei, the man who helped to design the Olympic Stadium, is a man who now can't leave China. There is no real uh, concerted political action. If you try that, uh, as in Tiananmen, and in the 300 other cities where there were big demonstrations in the spring of 1989, if you try that, the people who have tried that concerted political action may or may not go to jail, or they may be shot down or what we just heard about the standing committee that's about to be unveiled. That's what's about to happen in China. They're about to have seven or nine new men, new men always. They're being unveiled. Now, I think there are 700 of you here. I wonder if there are 20 people in this room uh, who can name one name of those people who are going to be running China. In, in the next 10 years, and most Chinese are the same. They have never heard of most of these people, and they will discover who they are after they've been unveiled. In law, the Chinese statement is verdict first, trial afterwards, and that happens over and over again. So that, for instance, when the wife of a man who's now also been disgraced, who was about to go on to the standing committee, she, she was accused of murdering the British businessman, Haywood. She read out what was the charge against her. It, it, had all been, it had all been written down for her at her trial, and then she was condemned. And as I say in education, if you ask Chinese now what they know about their own past, it's very, very little. And if you ask them what they think happened in certain great events, or what they think of the Dalai Lama, or about what goes on in Tibet, they'll give you the government line. So these are the things that I think are the big problems, that free speech, some kind of community action, a free press, all of these things wouldn't change these things, but they would start to make it possible to think about changing them. The enormous gap in China between rich and poor, which is very well expressed in Mr. Jake's book. The vast official corruption, which is what the Chinese say when they're polled by Pew, uh, is, is the thing that they regard as the most important problem. 
the one-child system, which may be now about to be changed, which has led to a very unbalanced society uh, in, in which there are far too many old people uh, and young people are going to have to support huge families and very, very old. Uh, I think we'll talk some more about this in the question and answer session. So what I'm not saying is that we have the model here or that we in the West have solved these problems. But these problems about corruption, uh, about the violence of the state, about the fact that Mao Zedong's portrait still hangs over Tiananmen Square. Can you imagine that happening in Germany with Hitler or in Cambodia with Pol Pot? I mean, it's really revolting, isn't it? So I think that we can discuss all this in the question and answer period. I look forward to that. I'd like to say one more thing. If I were a Chinese and I said any of the things that I've just said here to you tonight, and I said these things in China, I'd go straight to jail tomorrow, and I'd be in jail for years and years and years. It's a great thing, isn't it, that we can say these things here, or that my Chinese colleagues can say what they want to say here. They can say it, and nothing will happen to them. If I tried saying these things, and I were a Chinese in China today, I'd be tomorrow I'd be behind bars. So think about that and think how you would like it if you were a Chinese. Thanks. So that's the formal proposers for and against the motion. You've now got a chance to answer some of their questions. So let me open it up to you. I'm interested, uh, Martin Jakes, you said that um, perhaps at some point in the near or distant future, China might be right for democracy. Um, what, what changes would have to happen um, and what really would represent the, the tipping element for that? Great. And if you can pass to the man behind you with the orange sweater. Uh, Anson Chen, I assume you reached your powerful position without being voted in by a single Hong Kong uh, resident. Why do you think uh, the UK thought it was wrong uh, for Hong Kong to have liberal democracy? Even the last governor, Chris Patton, was imposed upon you. Was that a mistake? What changes are necessary for China to be ripe for democracy, which was aimed at, at Martin? Well, uh, I, I'm uh, absolutely sure that over time, China, as it has been over the last 30 years, will become more open, more transparent, more representative, more accountable. And as the population, uh, you know, was for so long obviously focused on basically survival and then, you know, trying to get a better living standards in a situation of poverty, as, it, as its living standards uh, greatly improve and lifestyle improves, they're faced with a range of choices uh, and that will influence the whole culture and the politics of China. The question is, mm. this is the question, what will it look like? Will that, will that take the form of what, we're, what we call Western-style democracy or will it take some other form? And I, I really don't know the answer to no, But the question that was put to you was what are the changes necessary for China to be ripe for democracy, well, whatever kind of democracy I, that is? Uh, what should we look... Excuse what, me, that's exactly what I've just been talking about. <laughs> so, what, so what will those changes be? In, well, they are about rising living standards mm -hmm. and the transformation of people's lives and conditions and possibilities and choices and opportunities. Mm -hmm. So I, I do subscribe to the view that as China becomes more prosperous, then pressures for, for greater democratization will greatly increase. Now, um, what the, 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 you, are, you asked another question, which is what will it, it be like? What will, those, what will a Chinese democracy be like? And I, um, I think that you know, factors like what Wei Wei's been talking about, which is the sheer size of China and the diversity of China, uh, um, uh, uh, play here. Because actually, no sub-global system, which in a way is what China is, has been a democracy. You know, the European Union isn't a democracy. Um, so size is a, is a serious factor, not necessarily a compelling factor, but it is a serious factor in relationship to it. 
Now, the other point I want to make is this. There's no tradition in China of popular sovereignty. There never has been. Likewise, by the way, there's not really a serious tradition of popular sovereignty in Japan. Japan, in my view, has a bolt-on Western-style democracy. But actually what really happens is uh, state sovereignty, which is accepted in Japan and China. It's a Confucian tradition. And uh, so Japan is really run by its state bureaucracy, although it appears to be like a Western-style democracy. And I think it's quite possible that, you know, what will happen in China will be that there will be all sorts of new forms of expression and popular expression and so on. But because Chinese history, because of the way Chinese see it, state sovereignty will still, in large measure, lie at the heart of whatever China becomes. I just want to say one other thing. Great question. Great question on Hong Kong. And the fascinating paradox is that it'll be in 2017, it looks, as if the chief executive will be elected by the Hong Kong population, which is something that the British did not achieve in 150 years. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, so, Anson Chan, would you like to respond? Okay, uh, yes. First, I'd like to ask Martin a question. Uh, if and when China is ready for democracy, does he also envisage the disintegration of the one-party system rule? It's, and if so, when? Well, I don't, I don't know when. Uh, it, it, it is a possibility. I mean, nothing is forever. Nothing is eternal. So but with respect, that is not the motion before us. The motion actually says Western liberal democracy would be bad for China. It doesn't put a time frame. Well, Nobody uh, is advocating a quantum leap at the moment. What we're saying, what I'm saying at least, is that there should be an evolutionary process to democracy as there was in Hong Kong. And you mentioned that in the year 2017, Hong Kong will have universal suffrage. I think that remains very much to be seen. I doubt very much whether there will be genuine one man, one vote. But I would be delighted to be proven wrong. Could and I... Can I answer that question? Yeah. I think it depends on what you mean by democracy. I don't think democracy centers just on one man, one vote. I'm willing to concede that at this stage, maybe one man, one vote is a little too early. But there are the other aspects of democracy which I believe to be important for all nations and for all human beings. And that is human dignity, some basic rights and freedoms, the right to participate in the governance, to improve the quality of governance, to have some say in issues that affect their everyday life, to have the rule of law, not the rule of men, not rule by law, and to have an independent judiciary that is not subject to the dictates of the one-party system rule. Now, I, I, I agree with Martin that in the th three, 30 years since Open Door Policy, there has been phenomenal economic growth, there has been a degree of personal freedom and social mobility. But the sad fact is that in recent years, market economy reforms have stalled and the government has backtracked on legal reforms. All judicial organs in China are now subject to the dictates of the one-party system rule. Do we seriously think that the population, that the 1.3 billion people in mainland China are content to accept this? You say that there are mass support for the one-party system rule. Why is it then that we get people in, from mainland coming to Hong Kong to participate in demonstration, particularly against the blind dissident, Li Wangyang, who was alleged to have committed suicide? And Sun Chan, could you, could you answer the question... I, I, will, I will gladly answer the question. First of all, I'd like to point out I was not a politician, therefore I was not elected. I was a civil servant, and I was elected, I, I was appointed as a result of a series of competitive examinations. I like to think that the recruitment board recruited me because they saw some potential in me. I did not owe my appointment nor my subsequent promotion to political patronage. And... And after I retired, I was democratically elected. I did participate in a by-election to the Legislative Council, and I won. And now the debate result. 
So the, the good news for Martin and Weiwei is that they have persuaded one person in the room to change their mind. Oh, <laughs> Voting for the motion were 229 people. You'll recall there were 228 before you came in. Now... Voting against the motion, persuaded by Anson Chan and Jonathan Mursky, 362. That's a, that's a lot of swing voters and a lot of committed voters <laughs> swinging. And the result I, as chair, am most thrilled about is that only 24 people decided that they didn't know. So a oh, huge thank you. We know who you are. We know, you are. We know where well, you live, and we're going to come and get you later. You undecided. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.